Well, the Canucks welcomed fans back to Rogers Arena last night, but they can't send them home happy after a frustrating loss to the Minnesota Wild. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. Joining me, as always, in studio, in the palatial, glamorous Sportsnet 650 <laughs> studios in Vancouver for the first time ever. He is the senior writer for The Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks. Of course, he is Thomas Drance. Drancer, welcome to the studio. I feel like you're, you're officially part of the team now. That uh, you, yeah. You it, get to see the, the broom closet where we do our business Totally. Here. It's it's great. I appreciate the welcome package, which is a mug of tap water. Yep. Uh, just truly tremendous. And I'm so excited to be here. So excited to be working on a normal show with yes. you. Thanks to Travis Green giving his club a day off. No uh, <laughs> n- no fire alarm yet. No. no freak technical difficulties. I'm knocking on wood. I'm expecting, half expecting uh, a horde of locusts or something <laughs> to descend on Ash Street here, given how it's gone for us so far. But it feels normal. We're in studio. We're in person. It's going to be a lot of fun. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come. With fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, of course, you can always interact, get in on the conversation. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We want to hear from you. Plenty to get into after the Canucks fall 3-2 in the much-anticipated, much-hyped home opener, but not just any home opener, Drancer, the first regular season game at Rogers Arena, we heard it all yesterday, with fans in attendance in 595 days. And look, the Canucks pulled out all the stops to kind of hype things up going into the game. They debuted an incredible new hype video that made me laugh quite a bit watching it uh, from the broadcast gondola. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of the game, I mean, just what was what was your reaction, you know, emotionally, from a media perspective, being in that building for a regular season game with fans cheering back in the stands? Yeah, you know, I watched hundreds of games. Like, literally, I've watched 100-plus games in empty arenas between Rogers Place and Edmonton, where I watched 64 and 58 days, and, you know, last season at Rogers Arena. Sorry, yes. it was Rogers Place in Edmonton. Uh, that's confusing. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> at least they pay the bills. Uh, in terms of the overall, you know, emotional reaction to just walking into the arena and seeing Vancouverites out in gear, having a night out, right? I mean, as as stone-hearted and negative as I am as a <laughs> card-carrying member of the negative Vancouver sports media, um, you know, that still means something. That still resonates for me emotionally. I was still excited to be in that atmosphere, and I thought the fans were great until puck drop. Like, I yeah. loved the anthem. I loved the laughs, like, the shared laughs at the uh, intro video, the superhero video. I thought it was awesome. I thought the reveal of Elias Pettersson as the Jedi was good. You know, I'm not sure about Bo Horvat as Batman. I'm not <laughs> sure that's a match. I Like, wouldn't he be Captain America? Yes, Bo Horvat's more Captain America. Right? Don't, and I, I mean, it's awkward because he's Canadian, but he has more of that vibe than the Batman Totally. Vibe. He's like, always J- does J. the right thing. would probably be Big Batman, game player. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> JT Miller is definitely Batman. Yeah. More of the brooding oh energy. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So, the... <laughs> I loved, though, I loved that, and I loved the reaction to player intros. Like, I thought... It was a moment for me where it was a reminder of, you know, the power that this market can have to be a really cool place, like a destination place for players to play, right? And we hear a lot about why this market 
is tough on players, right? Why players don't want to play here. We, we hear that a lot. But there is a sense, too, that the focus on hockey, that it's importance, right, does matter to guys. Like, it matters to Oliver ekman Larson. It's part of why he steered a deal here. It mattered to players in the past. Like, why do you think Dan Hamhuis, guys like Jason Garrison in the past, sort yeah. of sought out Vancouver as their free agent destination, their preference? And granted, those players are from British Columbia, but nonetheless, like, there's a level of intensity and passion around this team and for its, for its players that is cool. You know, it felt like the first time in a long time that the Vancouver crowd got to remind the players that wear that sweater of that. And they did during the player intros. Yeah, the intros were cool. It's it's the kind of thing where, you know, you're expecting the massive ovations for, you know, Demko and Horvat and Pedersen and Besser and all, all of the core players. But there's also just the little moments like for me, you know, Kyle Burroughs getting to walk out on the ice and be introduced as from Vancouver, Kyle Burroughs, right? Like that's such a cool moment. And he got a feed. huge reaction. Exactly. Right. And huge. you know, that's, that's that, that hadn't clicked for me before the game. And I was like, Oh wow. What a moment for him to experience, you know, still establishing himself as a regular NHL player. I thought that was really cool. And you could tell, Obviously, this is no surprise that there was so much excitement in the building. As you said, until puck drop, even after the puck dropped, you know, like there was the immediate Go Canucks, Go chant. When Patterson jumps over the boards for the first time, the fans are chanting PD, PD, right? Like there was such an effort to, to make that a lively atmosphere all night. Team didn't really hold up its end of the bargain. No, and I thought the Bo Horvat comment post game was so telling, right? Which was... You know, the, the comment exactly was when we gave them something to cheer about, right? They were cheering loud. And that's a, a tacit admission that the Canucks hadn't provided the fans with enough grist, enough meat to chew on in terms of bringing that energy themselves, right? Uh, the Wild score first, the Wild score second, right? The Canucks' big moments were to make it a one-goal yep. game. And the crowd responded in kind. Like, the crowd was great. During the power play sequence that led up to the chase on goal, the anticipation building, the appreciation for the way the Canucks kept the puck on a string. Um, and, and definitely that Bo Horvat reaction to the goal, right? The reaction when Bo Horvat scored a goal to rally late, make it 3-2, that was awesome. But in both cases, like the power play goal is followed up by, you know, a 3-1 goal eventually. Yep. And, and you know, a subdued crowd as the Wild continued to just grind away on the Canucks and, you know, stay on top of them. Outskate them, frankly. Like, outskate them, outhit them, uh, outcontrol them. They controlled the game completely, completely. The 3-2 scoreline flattered the Canucks. And, again, after Bo Horvat scores, the Canucks get stuck in their own end of the rink with minutes ticking off the clock uh, for an extended stretch. I mean... It was a frustrating performance in which the Canucks just didn't generate the types of chances or zone time or shifts that even gave fans uh, an opportunity to be really appreciative. Like, you know, that moment in the second period where fans went crazy for a Oliver ekman Larson clearance <laughs> that just didn't quite, uh, wasn't quite an icing, right? Like a perfectly weighted curl. Yep. You know, it's like, I get that we all think Kevin Martin should be on our money in this country, but that's not the moment that you want to see the crowd jump up and down. Hey, Tyler Myers got a chant from the crowd last night. So oh, yeah, he, that... should, he should have gotten a bigger applause. And also, they should have played the hit. They, they should have played the hit. They should have, yeah. They should like, have played the hit. If on they WK. played the hit during an intermission, he fans would have got a standing ovation. Yeah, yeah, standing ovation for Tyler Myers. Um, the reaction after the Bo Horvat goal late in the third was... 
that's the loudest I've heard that building in an awful long time. And I don't just mean because there were fans back in the stands, right? I mean, even going back to when they were regularly having sold out games, that reaction and that kind of pop from the fans was really deafening. And it, it was just a reflection of, one, how desperately they wanted the Canucks to come back in that game, but also how frustrating the game had been leading up to that. And really for me, you know, we've been talking about kind of the atmosphere and the emotion and, and the crowd and all of that surrounding the game. But from a hockey perspective, the takeaway from that game for me was just the Canucks continued inability to look dangerous on offense, to get to the dangerous areas of the ice, to generate real legit grade A scoring chances. They're down, you're down two goals in for most of the third period. And there was no sustained pressure in the Minnesota Wild offensive zone. No scoring chances, really. No no legit, legitimate scoring chances until Bo Horvat pulls that uh, spectacular goal out thanks to a nice pass from Tyler Myers. And that, it was the theme of last night, and it's really been the theme of the season so far to a certain extent, I think. It's just this team, for all that we spent the entire summer talking about how the forward group is much improved and they, they have a lot of talent up front, they have not looked consistently dangerous, really, for any stretch this season. No, they're the last place team among 32. 32 of 32 in terms of the rate at which they're generating scoring chances five on five. Same goes for expected goals. Um, you know, when you think about the games in which they've scored, right? When you think about that second period in Philadelphia, when you think about, you know, the Seattle game, right? You also think about goaltenders that didn't play well, right? Yep. Philip Grubauer having a bad night. Carter Hart having an early season nightmare. Uh, of an experience, right? That's sort of, you know, the the part of the problem here. Like the Canucks have been reliant on opposition mistakes, and I don't mean the usual types of mistakes, like the mistakes that the Wild, you know, created by pressing the Canucks, right? That on on each of their three goals, right? You could point to a pretty ov- obvious mistake by yep. a Canucks skater. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about goalie mistakes. I'm talking about like the types of goals against that your whole team slumps. Like, oh no, ooh. That's sort of what the Canucks have been leaning on in games in which they've scored sufficiently. Um, it's it's wild. We expected this team to be dynamic offensively and to struggle defensively. And instead, they're just kind of below average, just just below average defensively. And there's just nothing going on offensively five on five. It's massively counter to our expectations, right? It's not at all what we expected from this group. I don't think it'll last because there's just too much talent on this team. But as this club looks in the early going to establish an identity, one begins to wonder if they've sort of lost what made them special, which was the aggression, yeah. the offensive aggression, um, at the expense of cleaning it up defensively, right? And they've done that, but at what cost, right? Are there unintended consequences here? It, it, it's the kind of thing where, and first of all, you're completely right that it's counter to what everyone thought was going to be the issue with this team. And, it, you know, as you say, okay, there maybe have been below average defensively. I think a lot of people would have signed up for below average. Oh, if you told me that the Canucks, <laughs> right? if you told me that the Canucks would be just below average defensively, I'd be like, oh, they're a playoff wow. team. Yeah, they're going to be in the playoffs. Yeah, for sure. They got a great goalie and, and, and a good offense. Yep. Right? It just hasn't turned out. Demko's done his part, but it it hasn't turned out like that on the offensive end. So when you say you know, okay, they're 30, 32nd out of thirty two teams and generating these scoring chances, I just hear that and I think, okay, that. That cannot last, right? Like, they are not going to be worse than the Arizona Coyotes at generating scoring chances. I just find that intellectually so hard to believe. And you compare it to the problems this team had last year when it was all on the defensive end. And in that situation, you could kind of look at it and say, 
okay, yeah, maybe there's these extenuating factors, but also maybe just this team isn't going to be very good defensively. I don't get that feeling looking at this lineup and looking at this roster with the offensive problem so far. But for me, the real question is, well, there's a lot of questions. I mean, but when we're talking about where it goes from here, the question is, how quickly does it start improving? And where is the ultimate ceiling, right? Because mm. it, the ceiling, it can't just be, okay, they're, they, they've improved from 32nd and now they're the 20th best team at generating scoring chances, right? Like that's not going to cut it for this team. They need to be, it needs to be an active strength for them. And it has been so far from that so far, so far this season. And that's the really concerning thing. It's not just that it's underperformed expectations offensively. It's the gap between where we thought they would be and where they are is massive right now. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to find a line that's really generating or sustaining zone time. Right. I mean, you know, there's some criticism of, like, why are these lines in a blender all the time? But, I mean, you're looking for answers, and you want to give Garland some run, so you don't have a ton of different buttons to press right now, you know? Uh, one thing one thing where I understand fans would be frustrated is the, the Pod Colson-Miller-Besser line having a really good first period, right? And then not playing much together as a trio over the latter stages of the game. Like, I understand that as a frustration, but then you go look at the, that third goal... And you kind yep. of understand why, as the leverage turns up, right, the, the coaches are reluctant to throw Pod Colson out there, or at least more reluctant than they are earlier in games. Um, you know, other than, like, Dickinson, Dowling, or sorry, Dickinson, Highmore, and Hoaglander, though, like, it doesn't just, it just doesn't feel like any line is playing near to what we think their capabilities should be, right? Like, we, we just... The Horvat line is producing. Horvat has four goals. Garland has, you know, I think eight points. Like, yep. great, that's fantastic. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're just not seeing. Like, think about all those shifts we are used to seeing with Bo Horvat, sort of like pressing low and winning battles along the wall and doing some of the things that Bo Horvat does well in zone. In addition, attack attacking off the rush, which we did see last night. Uh, think about the lotto line and that precision passing in that cycle game. You know, like that's key, not just to generate goals but also to make sure you don't spend too much time defending yeah make sure you don't put you know players on your third pair like a jack rathbone or guys like a pod coles and in position to make mistakes because you're on your heels all game it's also important to get the crowd into it right like this city will go mad uh, the the city of the sedine twins will celebrate sustained offensive zone time <laughs> like that we vancouver will do that yeah. so you know i i think that all of this sort of boils down to execution, right? Like it does boil down to, cause I, I don't look at that wild team and think that they played a really great lockdown game in zone. I think they did great with their speed and, and they hit hard yep. and they played hard and they back checked well. But when you look at the in zone play, it just felt like the Canucks themselves were beating themselves. It was just, you know, a, a flubbed puck here, a bad touch here. Um, you know, just one or two things and, and the puck was going the other way. And it's not like we've we've never seen these players successfully have the puck in the zone and, and, and you know, have that kind of pressure and maintain that pressure and cycle the puck and do all of that. Like we've seen the lotto line be able to do that. We've seen Bo Horvat do that with his with his line mates. You know, we've seen Niels Hoaglander participate in that last year. Connor Garland, we know, has that capability. The players are all capable. It just 
it hasn't come together at any point this year. This text comes in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. It sounds like we need Louis Erickson back for his offense. Ha-ha. Nope. No. But his question is, uh, why are we playing on the perimeter so much? Four guys walking the blue line without any scoring chances seems like a horrible system. And <laughs> It's not it, a system, Well, that's though. the thing. And, and this, this comes up with the defensive issues last year right like yeah why why is what what's wrong with their defensive system and it's like well travis green's not going out there telling jt miller to make blind backhand backhand passes right. in the defensive zone right and travis green and the coaching staff are not telling the players hey just keep it really perimeter right that, that's not <laughs> the message from the coaching staff but i do think it's a fair I, I understand the question in the sense of what has changed? Like, why we all the players know, the coaches know what needs to happen, right? They need to get to those danger dangerous areas. Plenty of the players in the lineup have a track record of being able to do that, and it's just not happening. And I understand the frustration from fans saying, "Okay, what's going on here? Why? Why isn't it happening?" Yeah, I, it's tough to it's tough to know. I mean, I, I wondered if they'd turn the dial down on their forecheck. I mean, this team's been so reliant on their forwards typically to create the turnovers that then create fuel their own offense, fuel their own game. Um, in past years, anyway, that's been like part of this team's identity is a super aggressive 1-2-2 that forces turnovers and then they counterattack. Um, but, you know, Travis Green said last night, like, they haven't changed up their forecheck. So, you know, maybe it's a matter of not being quite as aggressive, may- being maybe too mindful yeah. of the defensive end. Maybe that's caused them to lose some of their offensive identity. But typically speaking, when you're talking about system, you're not talking about play with the puck, right? right. Like that, you know, That's not really, you know, there's set plays here and there. But for the most part, you know, you need you need this space to be creative in how you solve problems as offensive players within uh, an NHL environment. Like, that's how this works. So... You know, it, the the one that I always liked systems-wise, right? When fact is, is that fans and media aren't very good at talking about systems. Right. Like, we're, we're just not. I, I can't identify minute changes personally. And, and I watch thousands of minutes of hockey, you know, every month. Um, and then I talk to a video coaches sometimes, especially when I put together articles where I, like, watch a player's shifts with that player, right? I, I, I use my video coach contacts and I show them video. And the amount that they see... Like the amount that coaches see and at this level versus what you or I do or, or anyone listening, it's, it's, you know, world's different. And so you get these conversations about systems where fans are like, you know, the system allows yeah. offensive change, players. Change the system. Change well, the system. But also but yeah. the, the system allows players to enter the zone with speed too easily. And it's like no system is designed to allow a puck carrier to cross the blue line with speed. Like that, those are breakdowns. Those are individual efforts. That's personnel. Um, that's outside of what we're talking about. But. I do think when we're talking about coaching, we're talking about are the right players on the ice at the right time and, you know, the overall sort of big picture decisions, the individual decisions that we can sort of rate. And, you know, as I look through it, like, you know, Pedersen with Highmore, for example, like, I don't think we need to see that. I don't, I don't think we need to see that again. That line was, you know, generated nothing. Pedersen was outshot six to one at five on five when he was on the ice yesterday. Um, You know, the fact that the Miller Besser, Pod Coles and lines seem to be generating something and then was split up. I, you know, I, I get that they were down, but that's sort of hard to understand too. So I, I do prefer to keep my, the, the criticisms at that level because I'm more comfortable talking about it. And I tend to think fans are more um, savvy too in evaluating that side of the game. Yeah. And with the, you know, the lineup decisions, you point out, okay, Pedersen with Highmore and Hoaglander and I, we talked about that yesterday on the show. I understand it from the perspective of trying to get him with Niels Hoaglander, but you're right. I mean, 
the, the problem with the lines as they were set up yesterday is just they were they you look at them and you say okay these lines are almost designed not to last the whole game you know what I mean like you just know unless things are going incredibly well Elias Pettersson is not going to spend the whole game skating with Matthew Highmore and so that would be a question that I have as well is why not put the lines together you know in something that at least has a, a chance to kind of last the whole game but I will also say it's not as if you can point to Elias Pettersson's line mates for the reason he was struggling to generate offense last night because pretty early in the second period, he gets moved up to the lotto line, right? And it's it's Pettersson, Miller, and Besser back together. And that line, I, I don't know if they had a single dangerous shift or if they did, it wasn't until late in the third period. They just weren't able to tilt the ice like we've become accustomed to seeing them, or we were accustomed yeah, to seeing them. You know, some of it's score effects because they were down when that line got put together. But if you look at the overall sort of shape of this, right? With, yep. With Matthew Highmore, Pedersen played four minutes, 40 seconds, right? Uh, that line was outshot three to nothing and just throttled. Four scoring chances against zero four. Ends up playing almost 10 minutes with Brock Besser. So he didn't actually play that much with Highmore. He no. played an awful lot more with the usual lotto line. And they were outshot 2-1, to one, but, you know, 7-2 to two by shot attempts and 5-2 to two by scoring chances. Like, you know what? The lotto line, the, our, our perception of Pedersen's game was so colored by the start that we sort of lost that at least there was zone time going on. At least there was something happening once the lotto line got cooking late. I, I, you know, it's 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 a really tough balance because I look at the Lotto Line's overall performance this year and they've played a little bit more than 20 minutes together. It's approaching 30 minutes together and the performance has been so bad that, you know, I can't blame anyone for separating it. Like, yeah. like 23% expected goals <laughs> share. Like, brutal. Unplayably bad. But also, there's enough signs of life. And, and I just don't know where this team has other options unless they're going to try something with Garland on that line and separate the Pearson-Horvat-Garland trio that they're pretty clearly dedicated to giving a long look to. I think ultimately the solution is going to be the lotto line and just putting them together until it works. But you, you bring up an interesting point because one of the things that fascinates me about the Canucks' offensive struggles is when you look at shot attempts, like Corsi, right, which we call it, but basically how many shot attempts are you putting at the other team's net, the Canucks as a team are not nearly as bad as if you look at scoring chances or expected goals or anything, right? I think they're like 19th in the league in terms of shot percentage share. So, you know, pretty just average mediocre, which isn't great, but it's not a disaster. But then you, when you look at, as you said, high danger scoring chances, expected goals, they're at the very bottom of the league. So it's not as if they're never touching the puck. Right, like they're, right. they're getting the puck, they're getting these shot attempts. It's just they can't translate that possession mm-hmm. into actual legitimate scoring chances. It would be much easier to understand if it was, oh man, they're just hemmed in their own zone every day and they can't get out. They totally. can't even get into the offensive zone. It's not really the case. No. It's just okay. How do you get that possession? Get inside and make it meaningful, make it dangerous. Yeah, and and I think part of that comes down to player individual player performance, right? Like, yeah, what what do what do the great players do? They translate, you know. That, that perimeter possession methodically or suddenly and athletically into a dangerous scoring chance in the slot. They attack cross seam. And, and for whatever reason, I do think because of the fact that the Canucks are controlling possession in zone time but aren't getting inside, I do think that comes down fundamentally to their skill players just not quite being on the way they have been in the past, at least at five on five to this point in the season. And, and then we get in, Jamie, to the conversation of 
the fact that this team is struggling in an area that we expect to be a strength, is that like kind of sneakily a reason for optimism? Because well, yeah. you expect, <laughs> yeah, at least you expect that to be ironed out. And if the club can begin to graft some of their skill game onto an improved defensive structure, then perhaps they'll be cooking with oil. But the problem is you just don't have a ton of time to get going. No, that that's exactly what it is. It, I don't I don't question that they're going to get out of the cellar in these scoring chance departments on the you know, on an NHL level. It's just when does it happen and and how high do they climb up the table so to speak? We got, we got to go to break here in just a second, but as you said, a lot of this comes down to individual player performance ultimately and a lot of it comes down to Elias Pettersson specifically, right? Like he's their number 1 center, he's their superstar. If he is not performing and producing, it's going to have a domino effect throughout the rest of the lineup, I think. And this text comes in unsigned, says, you guys notice this? Right after Horvat's goal, there was a play where Besser was wide open heading towards the net. Petey had the puck by the boards, but instead of giving the puck to Besser, he turned and passed it to the point. And I actually did notice that play. And, you know, you never know exactly what's happening on the ice. Maybe the puck was bobbling and he didn't feel like he could make a good pass. But it was just an instance to me of where I felt he had the ch- a chance to make a dangerous play. And he made a a safe perimeter play instead. And I don't want to, you know, go through a nitpick shift by shift, play by play what Pedersen did. But I think it does illustrate when you have a player who's supposed to be hyper dangerous for you and he's just not anywhere near that standard. That that to me, that goes a long way to explaining the team offensive issues that we're talking about. Could be a confidence thing, something that Pedersen's been sort of hinting at or talking around in various interviews about his slow start to this point. Yeah. Uh, it's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Lots of great texts coming in. We'll get to some of them after the break. Keep them coming. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Lots more discussion about the game against the Wild. We'll talk about the blue line a little bit coming up as well. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by the senior writer for The Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks, Thomas Drance. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, of course, you can always get in on the conversation. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dunbar Lumber, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. And plenty of people are getting in on the conversation we had about these this team's offensive struggles there Inability so far, at least this season, to turn some not terrible puck possession into actually threatening high danger scoring chances. And uh, Todd texted, I think, makes an interesting point. He says, I would rather watch a 5-4 game than a 2-1 game. Offense is our strength. We should be top 10 in goals scored if we want to make the playoffs. And I I agree with Todd that theoretically the ability to score goals should be a strength of this team. But I also think he makes an interesting point about just the fan preference for seeing a dynamic offensive team. And, you know, this has been a storyline NHL wide so far, Drancer, and I'm interested to see how it develops here in Vancouver. Teams might be selling a hundred percent of tickets for their building, but they're not, they're not necessarily finding takers for all of those tickets. And, if the Canucks are going to play a lot of games like they did last night, and you know, credit to the Wild for the to the Wild to a certain extent for taking some of the life out of the game in the third period, but 
that was a pretty slow, dull game at stretches. And I do wonder if the Canucks want to be consistently selling out or coming very close to selling out Rogers Arena. Games like that last night are not going to help the cause. Well, and this is why I think that when we talk about, for example, Elias Pettersson, right, and and whether the market's concerned about him or not, this this conversation should take place on two tracks, right? Because there's one track in which over 165 games plus 20 games in the playoffs, we've seen, you know, the, the rise of a superstar player, right? And we should know, you know, eight months off, uh, missing camp and on and on that it's going to take him a little bit, but that he is that player. Like how much, how many games do we have to watch him play before we think he's something else? Like yeah. 40. Yeah. Like a lot, uh, like a yeah. massive number of games before anyone is going to be meaningfully concerned about who he's going to be as a player in this league. We know who he's going to be. He's a special player, but the other track of that is how much time does this club have for him to grind into gear. And and again, there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is that fundamentally when we talk about who's injured right now around the Canucks, we're talking about Sutter, we're talking about Mott, we're talking about Dowling, we're talking about depth players. Yep. On defense, you know, Tucker Pullman, um, I, I suspect that injury is not super serious, though we'll see, we'll learn more when the Canucks take morning skate on Thursday. Um, you know, Travis Hamannick's absent. But still, we're talking again about guys... You know, Tucker Pullman and Travis Hammond can't be season-sinking injuries for an NHL team, right? So this club is relatively healthy. They have nine of the next 12 at home. And I think we know that this team isn't in the Vegas or Toronto mold where they can make up a ton of ground by hitting this, you know, super high gear later in the season. Like, they need to build a lead now. The season gets difficult in the second half. Nine of 12 at home right now. Like, right now, you've got to begin to string wins together. It's crucial if you're going to make the playoffs. And the other side of it, too, is as we reach this fitful pandemic endgame, right, there are still people who aren't going to be comfortable spending their money to go be in a crowd with strangers the way that you do when you go to a Canucks game. And these are hard tickets to move. Uh, uh, The house is hard to pack right now. And if the players that are most clearly worth the price of admission aren't, then that makes everything even tougher in terms of, you know, running uphill or walking uphill for the franchise. It's a great way of putting it, right? At his best... Elias Patterson is worth the price of admission, and he's just, he's not there right now. Just as, as a simple matter of fact, he is not at that level right now. And it, it all adds up as Marcus and Gibson's text in look, Canuck seats aren't cheap either. That's a great point, right? Like, totally. They're, they're, they're still a premium asking price for those tickets. And, you know, it, it's, look, I, I'm still of the belief ultimately that, look, if the Canucks are winning 2 1 games consistently, people will show up, right? Because people love winning. But it, it certainly wouldn't hurt if they were able to inject some of the life back into the offense of this team. Um, before we talk about the blue line a little bit, and it was a really interesting night for the defense last night against the Wild, I do want to talk about Justin Bailey because. He was called up to replace Justin Dowling, who goes on IR. And, you know, Justin Bailey obviously featured with the team last year, but then there was all of these additions at forward in the offseason, right, to kind of flesh out the depth of the team and and also who's going to be playing for the Abbotsford Canucks. Then Justin Bailey has the issues with COVID protocol where he's when he's reporting for training camp, so he's, he's there late, doesn't really get to feature right off the bat, ends up starting the year in Abbotsford. For him, first of all, just to be the first call-up is is impressive and a good milestone for him. But then I was really struck. Team goes on the penalty kill, I think, in the first period, and the first two forwards over the boards are 
JT Miller and Justin Bailey. Like, it's like, okay, hey, you're up. We're not just going to play you five minutes here to fill, fill some time out there. We're asking you to do a job. And I thought he did that job really well last night. I, I, I agree with you. I played 215 on the, on the PK. The Wild had one shot in that two minutes and 15 seconds. And I thought there were moments too, even though they didn't end up generating even an, an attempt where they got moving the other direction in a way that stressed the wild out, right? Like that the wild had to be conscious of. Wouldn't that make sense? Cause Justin Bailey's a tremendous skater. Here's the thing about a player like Bailey, right? That was his 69th NHL game. Like he was drafted a decade ago and he sort of toiled in yep. that minor league level. Um, just hasn't, had his breakthrough, right? Hasn't broken through at the NHL level, right? Uh, with the Canucks in particular, that story takes on, you know, a, a different tenor because some of the, the breaks that he's dealt with, especially over the past year, have been outside your uh, outside of his control, right? Like he lit it, lit it up for the Utica Comets, was their best forward in the 1920 season. And last year, as the club's depth gets completely throttled, right? He gets into that game against Toronto. He plays well. It looks like he's about to go on a run where he's going to get some games and have a chance to show what he can do at this level. And then he gets hurt. And you hate to see that for a guy who's paid their dues the way Bailey has. And then comes into training camp, tons of competition, but some open spaces in that bottom six and yep. tests positive can't cross the border, misses training camp, never really gets a shot to even be in the mix for those battles or, or that spot. And so him getting that shot on the PK, it's not just high leverage for the Canucks because of the fact that this club needs penalty-killing bodies, and Bailey is fast, he has some offensive pop, right? And he's a big body. Like, that's a huge addition. If they can have a player like that in their bottom six, as opposed to a player who provides an awful lot less outside of four-on-five situations, like, that actually can make a difference for this team, but it's also super high leverage for Bailey. Oh. If he can be, in addition to fast skater, can score, you know, uh, is a big guy, and can kill penalties, I mean, that fundamentally alters, alters the dynamic of where what league does he play the next 200 games of his career in right like it's a massive deal for bailey good on him like you're happy to see a guy like that have success the way he did in an in an area like that last night uh if he can get some run in that spot uh could mean a lot for him could mean a lot for the canucks off to a good start based yeah. on Tuesday night. It was great to see him step up and grab the opportunity. And so much of the discussion about the Canucks fourth line battle and, the, and just the battle for roster spots at the bottom of the lineup in preseason centered around the penalty killing aspect of things, right? And and special teams to an extent with Alex Chason, but specifically penalty killing. And again, for Bailey, not only to be put in that spot to succeed like he did, you're right. It changes the conversation for where he falls in the pecking order for this team. So you know, not not necessarily a ton of bright spots for the Canucks at forward last night, but Justin Bailey and his debut this season was certainly one of them. 650-650, and Todd texts in, Bailey is under a million, Louie was six million. Finally, the fourth liners are not super overpaid. That's true. You know, That's there's true. also an interesting element to this too, where like, go look at the Canucks' books, especially after Zach McEwen got claimed Yep. Uh, by Philadelphia, like go to their cap friendly page and you will notice a slotting of like every forward at 750k, right? And this is part of what you can expect now that the Canucks have a local affiliate where you slot everyone at, at a similar level, 
right? So that these pieces are interchangeable in season from a cap management perspective, from an LTI perspective. Uh, the Canucks were really diligent about how they did their business and how they adjusted to life in, in a world where, you know, their, their farm team's not uh, an entire country and, you know, multiple <laughs> flights away. Um, that's part of it. And, and so Dowling goes on IR, identical cap hit comes up. That's that's how this team's constructed now. And and yeah, guys are slotted based on usage, like much better than they have been in the past where Vancouver's cap allocation was basically upside down. You know, we're we're almost in this moment like we've talked so much about cap spend being a problem for yep. this team in the past, and now you look through it and like that's not the problem. I mean, return on investment might be in some cases, but guys are basically paid where they're used. Yep. And and that does change things significantly for this team in terms of facilitating easier hockey trades, in terms of making it easier to replace injured players when they go down. And 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 lastly, you know, as we pivot, what, what people are going to start to realize is the new concern, I guess, is sort of the club's long-term cap right. situation and long sort the long sort of tail on deals like the Oliver Ekman Larson deal, although he's been incredible through seven games like really really good uh he was he was their best player last night maybe tyler myers tyler myers, tyler myers tyler had myers. another good night yeah but i mean i think i think ekman larson does a lot of the work that calms things down for myers and then when they're trailing and he's playing constantly with hughes yeah. it's just all offense so yes. it's uh, for me it's ekman larson last night he was awesome he's been awesome through these seven games but you know there's significant tail risk on that deal um it's going to be interesting to see how the Canucks navigate that in terms of improving over the long term. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dranson. I'm glad you brought up, you know, OEL, Tyler Myers, the blue line in general last night. I want to dig into that a little bit here for the rest of the show. 650, 650, keep your texts coming in. And we've talked a lot positively about the Jack Rathbone and Kyle Burroughs pairing so far this year. That was not their finest hour last night. And it ended up being reflected uh, in the ice time for Jack Rathbone specifically, who was under 10 minutes on the game. Kyle Burroughs, because Tucker Pullman left with an injury, Kyle Burroughs ended up playing almost 20 minutes, but the Rathbone Burroughs pairing, and I thought specifically Jack Rathbone as well, they struggled a lot last night. I thought, well, they did for sure. And Tough assignment. For me, that's fundamentally the main reason for it is the Minnesota Wild are massive. They've got a ton of big bodies. They've got a ton of speed and they've got a ton of depth, right? I mean, they're coming at you with really good players in that bottom six. Nick Bukestad and Marcus Foligno, guys who are six foot two plus, six six foot six in Nick Bukestad's case, bumped into him yesterday, like just a massive human being and, and a really good skater and... Offensive pop, legitimate offensive pop in his game. Um, you know, I think it was a little much. Like, I, I think it was one of those experiences where they didn't succeed. Uh, in Rathbone's case, like, you know, he, he didn't succeed last night. But that's okay. You're going to have these moments where you're playing a team unlike, you know, at a quality, unlike you've faced previously, right? The Wild are the best, deepest, fastest yeah. team that he's experienced this season by a lot. And, you know, he, he didn't ace the test, but it's not his final. Like, it's not the exam. And, you know, for the experience, he's going to have learned some of what he can do, some of what he can't do, and adjust. I mean, Rathbone's a smart kid. He's got the stomach for the fight. He's, he's an extremely talented player. 
I'm not worried that he struggled last night. I'm not surprised either because of what the Wild can throw at you. I mean, I think this Wild team might win the Central. I think they can give Colorado a run, especially if Kemper doesn't get his game in order. So, you know, this Wild team was phenomenal last night. They did overwhelm the Canucks third pair. I'm not concerned about that long term vis-a-vis Rathbone. Uh, this texture text in, we all love Rathbone, but let's not beat around the bush. He has been struggling and Burroughs has been doing a great job making up for his partner as much as possible. I don't think that's entirely fair. There have been no. ugly moments from Jack Rathbone, n- no doubt about it. As a rookie defenseman, that's not surprising, but I don't think you can look at it and say, oh, Kyle Burroughs is keeping that that line afloat or that pairing afloat there. It's a good fit. It's, it's a decent fit. And Kyle Burroughs is, you know, even on the... Um, the the turnover that Rathbone had that ends up in the goal after kind of you know bounces around in front of the net. I mean Burroughs lays out and blocks that shot right. So there, I I, I understand where the texture's coming from, but it's not as if it's not as if it's all on Jack Rathbone. And I, I do wonder though going forward. Now, as you said, you don't expect the Tucker Pullman injury to be long term serious. We'll see what his status is uh, for the game tomorrow against Philly. But it does seem. You know, with Jack Rathbone struggling last game, it seems like a a pretty clear opportunity for Travis Green to get Brad Hunt some playing time here, I would think, in the next couple of games. Yeah, maybe, but I don't think you want, like, I don't think you want to go away from Jack Rathbone after a game like that necessarily, you know? I mean, maybe you do because you think you need, you know, because it's a must win or whatever, but, yep. but I mean... <laughs> You know, in terms of the long-term development here, I don't think you want to get away from Rathbone right now. Um, you know, when I look through what Rathbone's done, when I think about what Rathbone's done, maybe a little high event. Maybe there's a little bit too much going on in both ends when he's on the rink right now. But that's usual for a guy still learning the league. That's not uncommon. Uh, his defensive outcomes and, and sort of results aren't out of line with what the Canucks are doing otherwise. And... The club's really been unlucky offensively with him on the ice, right? Like, they're not finishing anything with Rathbone on the ice right now. That's not going to last. So, you know, you're going to see, if Rathbone stays in the lineup, more of his dynamic puck movement end up in contributing to goal scored than you have so far. And I think that changes the conversation around him. Because he's been unfortunate offensively, I think some of the high event impact that he's had overall on the game just hasn't had a payoff, and that changes how it's perceived emotionally um, by fans in this market and and by media too, probably by the coaching staff a little bit too. But that's going to come. That's going to come. Club's generating a fair bit with him on. They're giving up a little more than they'd like to. Certainly that was true last night. But... I do think you got to let him work through it, especially considering, you know, the the gap in quality, right, based on Hunt's performance against Buffalo and and what Rathbone's done as a whole this yeah. season. It's um, you're, it's a good point because he has he has generated offensive chances for the Canucks, right, which they're in desperate need of, as we talked about at length to start the show. They just haven't translated into goals yet, and and I think you make a good point where. If some of those pucks had ended up in the back of the net, the conversation around Jack Rathbone is probably very, very different right now. The other thing we should just touch on uh, as regards the Canucks blue line is, of course, the team announced yesterday that uh, Travis Hamannick is with the Abbotsford Canucks. He is reported to Abbotsford. He's he's. Uh, I, I saw that Patrick Johnston, of course, who of course covers the team, went out to Abbotsford and took a picture of Hamannick on the ice before the rest of the team there. So. The timeline on that, I think, is very up in the air, but 
there's a potential that the Canucks could have uh, another player to to use on the blue line sometime down the road here. I mean, they could definitely use him. No question about that. I, I do think it's going to be a, a, a while. I don't think this is a... I don't think Hamannick's going to be an option off the bat by any means. I think this is going to take a while. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll see where this goes. Uh, he skated, but not with his, the Abbotsford Canucks as a whole. Uh, skated before they hit the ice. And, you know, as, as much as I'm skeptical, right, having missed training camp in a month of, uh, you know, uh, the first two weeks of the season – that Hamannick's going to be helpful. Like, it's going to take him a long time to catch up. I'm a little bit skeptical about his ability to be helpful, but then I think about the fact that you've got Tucker Pullman playing one RD minutes, and I think, you know what, he probably will be helpful, right? Like, he probably will uh, help stabilize or at least give them another option on the right side once he's up and running. Uh, we'll see when that is, but I don't expect it anytime soon. I think it's going to be weeks before Hamannick's even a realistic option for to be called up. Yeah, I think first of all I think that's absolutely right about the timeline here. Like this is not a situation where they're looking at, "Oh, hey, we can get him in this homestand." I I just don't think given given how long it, the layoff has been for him and where the rest of the team is at, I don't think that's realistic. But even if you are not a big fan of Travis Hamannick's game, you know, okay, the blue line struggled or at least the bottom kind of half of the defensive unit struggled, I thought, yesterday. So who do you bring in? Well, it's potentially Brad Hunt or Luke Shen, right? And based on what they did in that game against Buffalo, neither option fills you with a ton of confidence. So there is a need for, or at least there is a role that Travis Hammond can play. As you said, Tucker Poolman who, you know, we we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to go all in on just yet because he he was injured last night, but I thought he struggled last night. He's had a, you know, some rough performances here or there so far the Canucks. There there is a place where Travis Hamannick can help. It's just a question of how long is it going to take for him to be an actual useful viable piece uh for this team. Yeah, a while, a long while. And yeah, the the, the right side the right side has been the, the Achilles heel that we think, that we thought it would be. And I think it's manifested itself in, in a variety of different ways. I think it's, you know, even contributed to the lack of offense and the, and the lack of what the club is generating. So, yeah, I mean, any help they can get <laughs> is very, very important. Like, is very high leverage for this club's overall sort of health. And, you know, Brad Hunt, Luke Shen, these are veteran guys. These are guys who have waited patiently to this point in the season, right? They've been out of the lineup, uh, waiting to get a shot, and they've in part been kept out because the Canucks have, you know, performed, and yep. when they did get in, they didn't necessarily take their first shot. But, you know, make no mistake, like, these are both credible NHL-level depth players, and Brad Hunt's a lot better than he showed in Buffalo. Luke Shen can play more minutes um, safely, responsibly, uh, than what he his performance in Buffalo suggested. You know, I I won't be shocked now that the, now that it's been brought up to me. Should one or both get in on Thursday, especially with Pullman's status uncertain, I I suppose that would take some of the suspense out of, um, you know, the possibility that Luke Shen gets in. But but should they flop Brad Hunt in, I wouldn't be stunned by that in the least. And I would suggest to Canucks fans that what you see from him going forward will be far far better than what he did against Buffalo. Like, this guy is an NHL-level player and, and a pretty decent one. It is an interesting question, though, because we, we've had the discussion about a rookie's ice time so much in the context of Vasily Podkolzin, but I think now we're going to start to have that conversation with Jack Rathbone, at least in the short term, because, you know, typically, look, a rookie defenseman who is 
know, arguably directly at fault for a goal and then plays under 10 minutes in the game is, is stapled to the bench to a certain degree after that. Yeah, okay, that probably makes sense for the coach to take him out. But I guess the question is, you know, as you've brought up with Facility Pod Colson consistently, there's two things, right? There's, yes, this team needs to win as many games on this homestand as possible, but they also need to do whatever they can to make sure Jack Rathbone is in the best position to help them win games for the rest of the season. And I could see the argument that taking him out, giving him a chance to rest, you know, as somebody pointed out in the text message inbox, he played all seven preseason games. He's played a lot of hockey recently. Maybe you give him a rest, but... Just like with Facility Pod Colson, you can also make the argument for no, keep his role consistent. That's going to pay dividends sooner rather than later at some point. 100%. And, you know, what's interesting too about the inbox is there's a lot of, uh, you know, bloodthirst in this market right oh, now. Oh, yeah. Every time the Canucks lose, right? People want heads to roll. And that's an interesting dynamic that this club's about to work through too. Like, as we talk about filling the building, as we talk about everything else, like, part of the reason that right now this market is so invested in every result right is that to some extent the club has pushed a ton of chips in on this season on succeeding this season which raises the stakes and and on the other side of that coin you've got you know i think patience wearing out pretty significantly and pretty rapidly with key organizational leaders that's a tough dynamic that this club has to navigate too in you know not just their on ice outcomes but on the business side we got to get out but just on that topic the tenure of both Jim Benning and Travis Green is significant in a, on an NHL timeline, right? Oh, Jim, yeah. Jim Benning's been here since 2014. You know, know. Travis Green ha- has been here for a while. So in, an, in the NHL world, if you're in those positions for a certain amount of time and the team's not getting results, it's fair to start having that conversation. And you're right, it's a conversation we're going to be having a lot this season, especially after losses like the Canucks turned in last night. That's going to do it for the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. We will be back at 11 a.m. tomorrow. Thank you to everyone for texting in. As a reminder, you can also find the show as a podcast. Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Bick Nazar, Israel Fair coming up next with Sportsnet Today right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.